Welcome, everybody, to the Mod Pod. I'm your host, ABS Jesus, taking a step away from sports for once in my life and taking on politics, I guess. Um, I originally thought that I was going to do this podcast on just current news and events, but as I continued to look at topics and try to make sense of everything that I was trying to envision on doing, um, I just figured I would take on the challenge of coming in and doing just a podcast with politics, and, and not just politics, but from what I think is a truly moderate point of view. Um, I have no political affiliation whatsoever. Um, I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat, but I have um, some interest in this year's election, and I think going forward, I'm going to have more interest in politics as a whole. Uh, some of that is because of me being African-American. I think I need to be more aware of what's going on around me. And then just the curiosity of why does it make people act the way that it does? I'm very curious about that. But um, I have with me today um, my old roommate and one of my best friends. His name is Paul Burtsall. He's going to be um, doing the first episode with me uh, primarily because, one, um, I do – believe when we first met, he was um, considered a conservative or Republican. I think he was registered Republican, but um, obviously his views have changed, and I think he is also more along the lines of a moderate. Um, So he would have a very um, even perspective on things as well. And then two, it being the first podcast, uh, we, we naturally talk to each other anyway. I think it would flow pretty good. So I just opted to um, go ahead and see if I could get him on. Um, But first, before I bring him on all the way, I want to say that this podcast is a part of the IBN network. Um, We do a lot more than just sports. We also have an entertainment group. Uh, We also have a music group. And um, we've ventured out into television and and other things. Uh, We have a wrestling group now that's primarily just wrestling. Uh, We have various podcasts that we we host uh, between myself uh, my groupmate, Keith Fleming, and then our commissioner slash uh, leader, R.C. Carlton. Uh, we've got various podcasts dealing with real-world problems, um, the latest uh, binge-worthy Netflix shows, um, even uh, what what we call uh, the Malcolm versus Martin podcast that pretty much tackles all the racial tensity, uh, tension in America. So, again, we're, we're branching out. The Mod Pod is something that I wanted to take on, and I think um, hopefully it'll, it'll it'll hit the road running, but I'm going to get as creative with it as I possibly can, and uh, we, we're going to add this to our lineup. So, Paul, I just gave like a four-minute spill. <laughs> How are you doing today? I heard the today. Doing very well. How are you? I'm good. So um, we're doing this through Blog Talk, so Paul's actually on the phone um, I'm on my podcast mic, so I'm going to come through a little clear, but it's going to sound pretty much like an interview. Um, I like blog talk because it gives me a chance to use the uh, soundboard. We just don't have that on the uh, other platform. But when I'm done with this, I'll make some edits and then upload it uh, to the other platform. And we will be on Spotify, on the uh, Apple Podcasts, and, and um, just pretty much every other venue that we can we can possibly find. 
So, um, Paul, I kind of gave a little introduction into who you are uh, from a political standpoint. Did I did I miss anything? No, I think you hit it on the head. Um, I know for me, my I have not, or at least I've been a registered independent now since 2009. The shift I know kind of came after I moved basically down to Virginia, where you know, as you know, obviously I lived for like you know 10 almost 11 years. Um, so I was a registered Republican, I know, in the state of Connecticut, and I'm always reminded of that because I still have a Connecticut number, and I still keep getting random calls during election years from the registered Republican Party in Connecticut, so I should probably do something about that. But I was going to say, yeah, I have, uh, I did have, or at least from the first time I was able to vote until about 2009, I was going to say I was a um, registered member of the Republican Party, and that is a registered independent now for a little over a decade. Yeah, and I think it, it's interesting uh, for us to, to give this the racial background perspective because as a black man, um, I'm expected to vote Democrat. I mean, it's just, it's just I guess, in our DNA at this point. Um, I honestly can't tell you why, uh, and, and part of the reason why I consider myself a moderate is because I look around and I can't really think of much that Democrats do uh, for black people until election season and they get the votes and then it just, everything just stays the same. Um, but I, I find it funny that the night that I'm going to do this podcast, uh, my cousin posted that he's uh, voting Trump and the reaction from uh, his mom and my aunts and, and some of our other family members kind of made me laugh because I don't understand why, as a black person, we're, we're supposed to run to uh, a Democratic candidate when, in actuality, in my mind, when you look at the body of work of, of all these uh, politicians, it doesn't really favor uh, any minority, honestly. There's, there's bits and pieces that we can pull, but there is no true black candidate, you know? Even Obama wasn't a true black candidate. Um, and then, likewise, in the, in the same breath, as a, as a um, white man, the assumption for you, probably a lot of times, especially coming from minorities when they see you, is that you vote Republican. Do you get that a lot? Well, I, you know what's actually interesting? So, first off, I think I can kind of clarify where, you know, sort of the, at least my initial affiliation with the Republican Party came from. Like, you have to keep in mind, too, that at least from my perspective, and this is speaking mostly for me, but also for a lot in the community that I grew up in. I grew up in, first off, a very wealthy town in one of the wealthier states in the country. By default, that's, you know, I mean, you tend to kind of have more Republican leanings that way. But you also have to think, too, that, I mean, obviously, as you know, from the voting standpoint, Political affiliations, political opinions and stuff, especially when you're growing up, it's just all stuff that you hear parroted from your parents. Now, I never really – my parents were never really conservative. My parents were – well, let me, let me back that up. Mom was conservative, but that's also because mom was raised in an incredibly Catholic household and has been a very active member in the Catholic Church, which is definitely a hotbed of conservatism. However – they were very much issue voters because they were both educators. For them, it didn't matter what political party you belonged to. It was always 
what your platform was going to be on education, what you were going to do for the school systems, what you were going to do for teachers. And to them, that was the most important thing because that's what affected them. Now, I would say, at least for me, I mean, it could potentially be at least that particular leaning, but from from my standpoint, the conservatism, I think, came more from where I grew up because it's a very conservative town. That's why it's always kind of – it's always shocking to me because states like Connecticut and Massachusetts on a national scale always go blue. But where I grew up, I'm like, but that's not – that's not reflective of Connecticut. I grew up along the southern coastline. You go to places like Greenwich. I mean, all, all those – Darien, I mean, all those areas along the coastline, I mean, that's where you get the real wealth, like the New York-level wealth. Like those are the coastal towns where you have people coming in, you know, where New York people have their summer houses and stuff like that. So you're going you're, you're, you're gonna to get much more uh, conservative leaning out of that, and I think that's because you know, the conservatives tend to cater more to those people. You know, that's, that's, that's where you're going to get a lot of, you know, they protect the businesses, they protect the brokers. You know, that, that's where the conservative leaning, I think, comes from. Yeah, and I think, at least as far as in my experience. Yeah, and I was going to say, I think our definition of conservative for our generation is probably the old school way. But, I mean, I guess it's safe to say with Trump, we've got something of like a more radical new school movement where the perception of the Republican Party is that they're just flat out racist. Um, And... I've got some situations here uh, <laughs> over the last week where where it does kind of it kind of builds off of that image and and again like I said I consider myself to be very moderate I see the good and bad and 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 no pun intended in both sides okay <laughs> so no um, I, absolutely I I um. I actually placed a bet on Donald Trump to win the election uh, when he went against Hillary because he was four to one. So as a gambler, as a gambler, I felt like I could bet on the pulse of America from what I knew. And it made complete sense for America to elect somebody that was never qualified to be president, um, had all kind of scandals leading up to that, and could basically break things down in a third grade level where it seems like everything's great. And it's funny, I I didn't have enough time to break down the clips of Donald Trump talking and how simplistic his language is. Um, But one of my funniest moments of the last couple months was when the Melania tape came out and the way she was talking. Oh, about the the the, the clip about the Christmas tree? Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing I said was you can tell how much time she spent around Donald Trump based off of her use of the English English uh, language. Like it was it was just it was so choppy and the things she was she was saying it just sounded like she was basically uh, repeating everything she'd heard him say, which I feel sorry for her because of that. But uh, I just thought that was so funny. Um, and I want to say too before we before we start. The majority of this show will be making fun of the Republicans. Um, And the only reason why they're so easy to make fun of is because they keep giving you material. I mean, 
there's not much else that we could go off of with uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats. They, they're literally taking the approach of letting Republican candidates hang themselves at this point. Um, I will say that I did notice um, when I was looking for the town halls, when I went to YouTube, if you type in uh, Donald Trump town hall, you immediately get linked to the uh, NBC town hall. But when you type in the Joe Biden town hall, you get a bunch of clutter, and then you got to kind of sift through before you find the actual ABC um, like clip. Yeah. You, you can get bits and pieces of it, but you don't get the actual clip. So um, before we get started, again, I want to give the, the rundown. This is a affiliate of the IBN network. Uh, we Like I said, we do sports, entertainment, movies, music, whatever, you name it. We are branching out. This is my attempt to branch out um, and, and do a podcast that is not sports-centric. And, again, we will have various guests from time to time. Um, like I said, today I have my, my uh, friend Paul. And with that, we will get into the show. So my first segment, Make It Make Sense, okay? <laughs> that is the title, Make It Make Sense. Donald Trump, our president, Donald Trump, tested positive for coronavirus. He was flown to Walter Reed. This is a couple weeks ago, or yeah, it was about a couple weeks ago. He's flown to Walter Reed. He came back from Walter Reed, uh, albeit a little too early, according to some people, uh, a little too late, according to him. But it was, it was a, it was a strange moment made even more strange because of the things he said and did after that. Um, there's just so many, so many bits and pieces of this, of his first speech back that you could, (laughs) that you could just poke fun at, but the intro is what made me laugh the hardest. And I'm going to play the, uh, the five second intro here. I just left Walter Reed Medical Center and it's really something very special. Have you ever heard anybody describe a near death experience as something very special. Was he leaving Disney World? <laughs> like that's the reaction you get that's the reaction you get when you well, I was gonna say when you get out of Epcot, but no one no one likes Epcot, but you you get the idea. You leave Universal Studios and that's the reaction that you get. He is and and this is something I definitely want to preface with him. We we always have to keep in mind with with Donald Trump that it's it's the persona above everything else. That's it's the way he's perceived that has been the most important thing to him. He has a particular image of himself that has been cultivated over years of actually even before reality TV from the time the art of the deal came out. And there's certain things about himself that he will fight tooth and nail to protect. And I think even with the way that he handles an incredibly Serious and let's let's not mix and match. Like, and I've seen this online before too when they talk about Trump, where people have talked about, you know, oh, the media is giving Trump, you know, grief about the way he handled coronavirus because he didn't die from it. It's like, okay, you guys still aren't getting this. This is a serious thing. It doesn't matter if you survive it or not. Our friend Dana, who's a nurse, has also alluded to the fact of. It's not just the fact that this disease has the potential to be fatal. It's the long-term effects from it. 
that can last for God knows how long. But hearing the very nonchalant way he has insisted on talking about this experience is you you would just think after getting the disease itself there would be a degree of self reflection or at least you would hope. But the the way and the very nonchalant attitude he seems to have it still seems to me to be a way to either undercut the disease or make himself seem stronger than the disease itself. Yeah, and a lot of the negativity uh, in relation to Trump in the media, um, he hasn't done himself any favors with the media. I mean, he's he's very no. uh, aggressive um, when he when he's confronted with anything that he doesn't necessarily want to talk about. He hates for somebody to, to bring up a counterpoint. Um, so the media, for the most part, is it, kind of tit for tat with with this with this administration and the media, and he takes his shots, they take their shots, but he whines about it, which annoys me to no end. Like you can't you can't be rude and disrespectful to people, and and they match your energy of being rude and disrespectful back, and you cry wolf like oh they treat me poorly. Well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> what do you expect? Well, you also, you also. I was gonna say, you also have to understand. This is a rich person mentality. Yeah. And you you see it among a lot of very rich people, and it's the strangest thing. He is the most powerful person on the earth, yet somehow he's always being bullied. Yeah. He's the most. He's like the wealthiest person allegedly in this country, yet somehow he's always the underdog. Like you, you can't be both. If you have everything that a person could need in terms of advantages, in terms of wealth, in terms of connections, you can't also be the underdog. Like you can't be Apollo Creed and Rocky at the same time, can you? Like no, it's, you it's just like it's not it's not possible. Like somebody has to have the advantages and has to face the person without the advantages in order for there to be an underdog. You you can't have it both ways, but there there seems to be an, an insistence with him, but also a lot of people within that particular bracket of wealth where normal people are supposed to empathize with the problems they have when it's like they're, they're not even – like the, we would kill for rich people problems. Like, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I was going to say, in, 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 especially with everything going on with the pandemic. Yeah, and, and there are plenty of people – Again, no pun intended, that would kill for the ability to go to Walter Reed Medical Center and get all these experimental drugs, steroid concoctions that they apparently gave him and make themselves uh, better again. Um, I mean, Mr. Christie didn't get that. <laughs> he was in the ICU for seven days, you know. Um, but How is he – I'm sorry, and this is not to interrupt again, but how is this man still – like? It, it, what it, what amazes me is how much of a black hole Donald Trump has become to a lot of the people who supported him in the sense where it's like, are are you guys actually getting any benefit out of this? Like, yeah. what is what is Chris Christie gained as because he set Trump up during that New Hampshire debate, if you remember, in 2016, where he effectively delivered the knockout punch to Marco Rubio and made him look foolish. And that was one of the things that helped kind of give Trump that particular edge. So it's not like Chris Christie has done nothing, but he's also 
gain nothing. Like, yeah, he's kind of a part of the cabinet, but what has he actually gained? Like, hell, Jeff Sessions got to be attorney general for, you know, a little. Yeah. I mean, he at least got some kind of benefit from his support. There was at least a reward there. But even in that particular case, Sessions' political career is basically over. He didn't even win the Republican primary in Alabama. And he'd been an institution down there, hadn't he, for a while? Yeah, didn't so, he, did he lose to um, didn't he lose to Moore? No, um, he lost to oh my God, the name oh, wait, is no, escaping me, but I think the college football coach. Yeah, Tuberville. yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, I was gonna say so. That's that's the and the, again, this wasn't to interrupt, but when you mentioned Christie and just hearing Christie talk about like. Christie was quoted in the New York Times as, like, urging people to wear a mask. Like, he's come out of the other side of this diagnosis with a huge degree of self-awareness, being like, no, this is actually really serious. You need to, you need to wear masks. It's like, but it's like, Chris, have you gotten anything out of this? Like, why are you still has. clinging um, to this? I think he was part, he was, he was part of the campaign, um, or like this, or like this last, Painting, he's been a part of that. Um, I don't know, man. Even Giuliani got a got a seat at the table. <laughs> hey, he's doing that job. Giuliani, dude. Giuliani went from mob prosecutor to mob consigliere with the way he is, with the way he's done this PR stuff. Yeah, like man. it's like I mean, granted, there there have been numerous reports. And John Oliver actually did a really funny bit on Giuliani kind of exposing the fact that he, he's always kind of been this way, but 9-11 really did a huge number on his credibility because he really did, in the aftermath of that, show himself as a very, at least during that time period in the aftermath of the Twin Towers coming down, he was very much of a stable kind of comforting presence. So, you know, I mean, out, outside of those, and that was kind of the thing that stuck with him and that what kind of pushed him to try to seek, you know, the presidential nominations in the next, uh, you know, at least in the next cycle of election. So, I mean, out, but outside of those years, like he always showed shades of kind of being a whack job. And we just kind of forget about it because of how well he did in the aftermath of the 9-11 attack. Yeah, but, 9-11, 9-11 was, seems to be his calling card. Um, and typically when, when Trump touts uh, Giuliani and his leadership, he, he hints to or sometimes directly points to uh, the time when, in 9-11 uh, when he, Giuliani was, was the mayor. And obviously Trump was a, a resident of New York, so um, – they they kind of go hand in hand, and I, I'm glad you said something about uh, Christie though, and and the political implications of some of the other people around Trump, because essentially, in my mind, what I see is um, the Republican Party is is still in this mindset that they have to support the president, they have to not necessarily toe the line. But it's it's a constant act of what's what what's essentially the right thing to say and do, and what is whatever Donald Trump wants. I mean, just in the the Senate alone, 
Mitch McConnell is the majority uh, leader, he's already got issues with how much money Trump wants to give to the stimulus package. And, and to me, these are the two most powerful figures in the Republican Party. You got your president and you got your uh, Senate majority leader, and they're not even on the same page for the stimulus package. Trump is out here tweeting, you know, spend big, more, more, more. Uh, he's he's even increased the amount up to I think it was like 1.6 trillion or something like that, and the yeah, reports, yeah, the reports coming out uh, about McConnell's offer is is so significantly less than what Trump wants that it's it's almost setting up to me um, for a showdown of an identity crisis for the Republican Party. Um, I don't know how it's going to play out. I've, I've already seen, um, I think the, the senator from Nebraska has been outspoken about Trump um, on, on his town hall that he did over the phone. And I think some, I think some of the smaller people are, are getting tired of Trump essentially sabotaging their image and campaign. Well, keep this in mind, and this is something that I think is, is something that we're seeing, and this really is a both-sides issue, like you're, you're absolutely 100% right that there is an internal struggle going on right now for the soul of the Republican Party. But keep, the, keep in mind, the Democrats are facing their own identity crisis. It's just not one that's necessarily as serious. The Republican Party is right now in a tug of war. And another friend of mine who's an attorney down in Virginia who is also a former member of the Republican Party who's now a registered Democrat was saying that what you found over the course of the over the course of time, at least since Reagan and the Republican Party, is that slowly but surely, the people calling the shots within the party itself are much more from that evangelical right, and that it's now gotten to the point where the people who are the old school, small government Reagan era Republicans are looking around, going, "Where the hell did all of you people come from?" Because it's now consumed the party. And what you're seeing now with the Republicans is a tug of war between the people who want to push it to that particular point and those who still believe that it's you know the Reagan party when it, it really hasn't. The Democrats, in contrast, are facing their own party because as progressive as the Democratic Party purports to be, they are still erring more on the conservative side when it comes to – party policy. The party is now starting to get separated into the camps where the younger voters are now starting to gravitate more into the camp that you find with Bernie Sanders, where they want things pushed more left, which if you think about it, makes sense. Most of the things that Sanders was, push, was pushing, at least as far as health care, when it comes to, say, things like you know, higher minimum wages. Hell, even some of the things Andrew Yang was putting out there during the debates where he was talking about a basic universal income. Younger voters are pushing for those things because they're the ones who are starting to come in and starting to see how much the deck is stacked against them in a lot of ways. And the party itself doesn't want to move there. Like in the earlier part of this podcast, you were talking about this notion of how what we considered a Republican when we were growing up is different now. You know who's a Republican or who would not have been a Republican in the 90s is Joe Biden. You know who yeah. could probably pass for a Republican now is Joe Biden. 
at least in the sense of the same policies. It's it like that's the thing that the Democrats don't seem to get. And I've and again, it's very interesting. You mentioned your bet with Hillary. If this pandemic had never occurred, if things had not been messed messed up, and I mean just messed up in so many ways as this administration has done, and I was actually talking about this with my cousin earlier this evening, I would have said guaranteed we'd have four more years of Trump because the Democratic Party doesn't seem to understand that the safety net that Joe Biden represents, that warm and cozy embryo of the before times before Trump, is not what we're looking for. It's what led to Trump in the first place. Yeah, and, and I honestly, think, and I. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and honestly, I think <laughs> it's it's so hard to do this on the. Uh, on the I know, I know, I got it. Uh, I'll go. Ahead. I was going to say honestly, as a as a moderate. The, the image of, of Biden does not bring an image of Obama to me, and I think that's what they were trying to capture because, to me, Biden is basically Hillary all over again. Well, no, and, and you're absolutely right, I think, with that point. What the Democratic stance was at this particular point was is they figure, all right, this election is going to hinge on getting those people that you were mentioning, those Republicans who – used to be, you know, what I think a friend of mine referred to as the, you know, the border collie Republicans, where it's like they could run a border collie for a Republican ticket and the people will still vote for them. The people mm-hmm. who were so used to voting for a Democratic t- or a Republican ticket, excuse me, down the line, who are now looking at what the party has become and how much they're willing to bend some of the exact same principles that they said they would never bend – and are now going, all right, I don't feel comfortable voting for Trump anymore. However, I would need someone on the Democratic ticket who would be a little bit more center than left. That's what the Democratic play is. They're, they're doing the safe thing. They're not taking a risk when – I mean I don't know necessarily if – again, I'm not a political strategist. I'm not someone who could potentially look at – the state of America throughout all 50 states and say definitively, well, I think this would have been the time to take a gamble or not. But what they were going for is familiarity. And they were going for what, again, like, you know, when most people, you know, when they ask when the last time America was great is, is they always reminisce to a time where, you know, they'll be like, oh, you know, the 50s. You you mean when there was segregation? Like they they remember this rosy colored version of the past. The Democrats are trying to get people to think back to that rosy-colored past where, like, you, you, you're trying to get them into this, no, 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 but if you get it to Biden, then things will at least return to normal. Well, the normal times, even when Obama was president, and even in the times before Obama, they, there was still a lot that was wrong. And there's still a lot of things that were going on that alienated voters, that got voters angry. And... You know, it, it's like the, the, the rosy past that they're trying to bring people back to is, is, is that same thing of, you know, America in the 50s. Like, there were some good things, but there was also a hell of a lot that wasn't. And it's yeah. what they're choosing to remember. Like, you're choosing to remember in eight years of Obama where, you know, the, you know thing, at least, you know, there was, there was some degree of stability and you know the president wasn't consuming you know all of you know all the tea, you know all the time on the air 
but you're also thinking about a time when you had the Tea Party on the rise, when you had a Republican Congress that was hell-bent on stalling a lot of the things Obama was trying to do, when you had a rise in you know, local militias. Like there, there was a lot of anger and tension brewing beneath the surface during those years from varying causes that it's like this is not something you necessarily want to go back to. It's like so instead of having uh, another four years of an explosion, we want to contain everything again and let it build back up till it explodes again. Yeah, I don't know if there's a – I don't know if there's a way to stop this collision course that we have with um, with just the craziness that is politics in America this, uh, now. I mean, we we've got um, and I used I did have this as a segment, but um, we've been talking just basically free flowing, um, so I'm cool with that. But the idea of people thinking that they need to kidnap governors or or uh, like the concept of stay at home orders being unconstitutional and tyranny, and then the extremes that people would go to 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 kind of I don't, I don't even know. To take matters into their own hands, per se, is just ridiculous. I mean, the the plot to kidnap the Michigan governor was, to when I was reading it, it was a little uh, concerning. Um, and I will say, as some of it is me um, being a black man and, and thinking to myself that at some point, these people, because... The, my fear is that after the election, everybody's going to blame black people. Whoever loses, it's the black vote's fault, which is weird to me because we don't make up that much of the population, but apparently we, we sway votes like no other. But um, there's a meme that I had posted on Facebook that I thought kind of sums up what it's like to be a moderate or what it's like to basically be a minority voter. And it's a um, it's got a crowd of people, and they're yelling at one person. They say, "Voting is your civic duty. Here are your candidates." And the person's like, "Oh, there's only two? And everybody's like, "Yeah, there are others, but they won't win, so don't waste your vote." Which we all have heard that plenty of times. Oh yeah, tons. And the person's like, "Well, I don't like either of these two choices." And then they go, "We know, but it's all you have, so do your duty." And so the person's like, fine, then I'll get, I'll take this one. And then the crowd changes and it's like, no, not that one, you fool, you doomed us all. That's essentially I, what I feel like is going to happen on the third, is that if Trump doesn't win, his his following are not going to accept what happened. And there's going to be anger and resentment and there's going to be targets, man. And I just feel like minorities are the easiest targets, which is unfortunate and I think we've had enough um, examples leading up to election day to let us know that this is probably going to be – it's not – they keep calling it um, the election to save America or the, the most important election of our lives. Based off the debate and just how things have went in the country this year, it's going to be the worst election of our lives. And you're – and I can tell you – I can tell you your fears, at least the ones that you've just expressed, aren't unfounded, at least as far as what you talk about with these right-wing militias. But it's interesting, you know, when, we, when, you, when you 
bring this point up because there is, these there and it, you kind of it's funny when you brought this up as a topic because I meant to tell you like damn it you sent me down a rabbit hole because I spent like <laughs> several hours looking into these groups and the more and more I looked in the more terrified I became so I can thank you for several sleepless <laughs> nights over the past couple times but what and, I can tell look, you is well I was gonna oh, say no, go it, it's and and again in true moderate form don't get me wrong I. I don't know if I believe in Antifa, but there's definitely some crazy left wing people out here, man. Like, don't I? I don't know if they're forming militias or if they're doing parades and things like that. I don't know. I feel like the the Republicans by nature are a tad bit more aggressive and, and organized than uh, well, liberals. But either way, there are extremes on both sides for sure. And in that aspect, I do think that the public. Um, does give Trump um, a hard time and and does um, kind of not take it into consideration. Like he keeps saying Antifa, Antifa, uh, the crazy left things like that. Maybe not so much Antifa, but actually there are extremes on both sides, and there isn't much um, there isn't much emphasis put on the left side of the extremes. It is typically the the right side that we hear about, the militias and, and the hate groups, et cetera, et cetera, that we hear about. We don't primarily hear about the left side of it. But there's a reason for that. And I totally get what you're saying because you, you think about stuff that you have in the 70s where, you know, you had the extreme liberal, liberal groups like, say, the Weathermen who, you know, were definitely on government watch lists and stuff like that for acts of terror. But the the very right wing extreme, especially with these militias and what we're going to call, I mean, let's call, let's call them what they are. They're ex, they're domestic terrorist groups. Mm-hmm. And it, in the research that I did, it's really interesting because that race war white supremacist mentality is definitely an element that's prevalent in them. But it's wrong to just solely dismiss them as that. Because it completely undercuts what they are. And you can look at it in the difference of the responses between the two governors. The Michigan governor was saying that her plot to, you know, the, the kidnapping plot that she was at the center of wouldn't have happened if Trump would have dismissed the white supremacists. But it was actually Governor Northam in Virginia who was potentially another target of that plot who actually pinpointed it. And the tweets that Trump should stop doing or the things that he should condemn to stop groups like that, they're not being empowered because he's not condemning white supremacy. They're being empowered when he tweets stuff like liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia. The minute he starts throwing that in there, that's the thing that's empowering them because the common thread that all of those groups have in common is that they are all anti-government. They're mm-hmm. less – I mean there's, there's elements of that like KKK white supremacist aspect in there, but what a lot of them really are are A, ex-military, which is a point I'll get to in a minute, and B, very much along the lines of that sovereign citizen stuff that you see in your day a lot more from what you've told me. <laughs> the people who – the people who are very much that individualist-minded. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they don't have a political affiliation. By sheer coincidence, if you look at statistics, 
in the Obama years and the Bill Clinton years, coincidentally, you saw a rise in membership in those particular groups, whereas during the Bush administration years, you saw kind of a lower membership. So they're very much conservative in their ideology, yet they're anti-government, which seems strange to me because it was during the Bush administration that you saw a heavier concentration in executive power, which if you're anti-government, would strike me as kind of the thing that you'd be kind of suspicious of. But I digress. It's also yeah. kind of a weird thing how during the years of Democratic presidents, you see a rise in gun ownership and gun purchases, but not so much in the other. These groups are a little bit more complex, although, again, I'm not trying to diminish the white supremacist race war aspect of it because that is definitely there. These are guys who, and if you want to start doing some own research on your own, especially with any of your listeners, look up as a perfect example of this. Look up the case of Amon, A-M-M-O-N, Bundy. This was the group that took over that government building in Oregon back in like 2011 or 2012, where they had the standoff with the FBI. This is That's the type of people that these guys are, the ones who – go against the government on things like that when it's convenient for them. Like you've seen it with the sovereign citizen stuff. These are the guys who basically don't want to claim any kind of affiliation as a United States citizen when it comes to things like paying fines or paying taxes. But it only happens during reigns of democratic leaders because they always view them as more of a threat, presumably because of a lot of the anti-Second Amendment stances. Yeah, so I've struggled with this a lot during the last four years um, in trying to figure out if Trump knows what he's saying or if he's just, if he's just a, a dude who talks too much and doesn't realize that there are consequences uh, to his words. And I go back and forth. Um, at the last town hall, he specifically condemned white supremacy, which I have heard him in the past do it before as well. But the hesitation to do it um, at the debate is, I think, what kind of led people to to um, kind of scratch their heads a little. And then the words that he chose to use made them scratch their heads too. And again, I I personally think he's not that intelligent, um, so his vocabulary is very limited, especially when he's put on the spot. <laughs> he likes to he likes to deflect a lot uh, with his language and, and use his hands and, and say things like uh, like we're gonna do great things and they'll be great they'll be the greatest ever and and then he collects his thoughts in that process and then we'll give you another talking point. Like I feel like to me it's kind of a sign that he's not that bright, but. Uh, to be put on the spot like that, to hesitate, and then to use the words that he used, um, and then have those things like with the Michigan governor, and then um, apparently Governor Northam was also a part of, of the plot as well. And then, like you said, the, the tweets of liberate Virginia, liberate Michigan, and his overall demeanor in his whole four years or three years and some change, has been very anti-government himself. And he's in the government. He's the head of the government. He doesn't trust the FBI. He doesn't trust the CIA. He doesn't trust his chief of staff. He doesn't trust his advisors. He doesn't trust 
anybody. He would trust Rudy Rudy Giuliani before he trusts uh, people that he's hired to give him intelligence briefings. You know, like he just he he's almost to the point where where he's basically the um, the spirit animal for a lot of these people. Like uh, he he said in the town hall, she asked him about him uh, retweeting something that was from uh, QAnon. And he was like, I don't even know who that is. It's just a retweet. Why does that matter? Almost like like he couldn't process that he's got 18 million followers, and him retweeting that is a sign to a lot of people that he supports that that line of thinking. Like he doesn't understand, or he can't comprehend the the uh, power that he wills with his influence, which I think to some degree is kind of ridiculous because he holds these rallies. And his talking points are all things that empower that particular section of our nation. When he talks about the, um, the, the girls, uh, the, I forgot his nickname for, um, for the young senators, uh, the young women, when he talks about them and he like, you know, says things like, if they don't like it, they should go back to their country. That becomes a rising cry for people because they're like, well, the president said it, you know, like they, they really feel like they're empowered. And, and like I said, from a minority from a minority person's perspective, I know for a fact things were not peachy keen when Obama was in office. When Obama got elected, when Obama got elected, I didn't even vote for Obama. I didn't even vote in that election because I didn't want anything to do with it because I was sick and tired of the fact that people were basically trying to force me to vote for Obama because I was black. And I liked John McCain. And so I wound up not voting. I actually went to sleep the night before, and I remember there was, like, the celebration in the street and everything, and I think I've told you the story before. I got to work at 5 o'clock the next day, and we were at ACAC, and a ton of conservative people at ACAC. The people are getting dressed in the locker room and everything, and on the television is CNN, and I've never seen such a collection of angry white men <laughs> when I walked in there. Like, the whole mm-hmm. vibe had changed. And Without even prompting a conversation, this guy just looked at me and was like, I know you're happy. Like, what? <laughs> and so I explained to him, like, I don't even, I didn't even vote for Obama. I was like, I don't care about this crap, man, which at the time I didn't. Obviously, things have changed. <laughs> but it's just that that mentality in our, in our nation. Like, I, I think we've always been divided like this. It's always been this politically divided with an undertone of racial division and Trump's persona and his energy that he pushes into his base has now brought the race more to the forefront and the parties more to the back. I think, and you're definitely, I mean, you're, you're definitely right about the empowerment. Here's the reason why I give a degree of latitude when it comes to Trump with those comments, because there was, there was a quote that John Stewart had when he was talking about Hillary Clinton, and he talked about Hillary Clinton, and he said, I would love to believe in Hillary Clinton's convictions. I just wish I knew what they were. And I kind of feel the same for Trump in the sense that it's like, I don't know what the hell this man actually believes. Like, he is somebody whose primary goal, as I mentioned before, is image. His primary goal is, you know, it is getting positive feedback. And I feel like 
he constantly is looking to do whatever it takes to get it. And what he doesn't realize is that the crowds that are seeing him, there's a heavy population of the type of people that you're talking about. With, with people like him, and I think this is, again, sort of my shot at wealth, there's such a degree of insulation to the point where things that affect normal people don't affect them. It's kind of what I'm going to call sort of the Fox News syndrome. Like, I don't think Tucker Carlson believes half the crap that he says, but he knows it's going to get him attention, and he knows it's going to get him ratings. So he's going to say whatever it takes to get to that end, even if the things that he says are empowering the wrong kind of people. And Donald Trump, I feel like, falls into that category where he really doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't understand the type of people he's empowering because he knows it's not going to affect him, which, believe me, is no better than him being an outright racist because it just shows that his position in this country is so high above everybody else that he can just basically say and do whatever he wants and let things play out. And at the end of the day, his interests won't be affected by it, even though it's going to affect everybody else. Now, that's not me saying, see, anybody who calls Donald Trump a racist is wrong. Like, given his history with, you know, say, for example, what was it, the Central Park Five, who yeah. were acquitted, and yet he was still, like, harping on him. Like, the man definitely has some prejudices. There's no question of that. But like you said, he, he's not that smart. He's not that clever. He's not doing this 4D chess thing that people are talking about. He is somebody who will say and do whatever it takes to get positive feedback, and it doesn't matter what the long-term blowback is. Like him retweeting the QAnon stuff, in my mind, that's no different than me giving you a shout-out and a tweet and you retweeting me. You're seeing somebody giving you positive feedback on something you said, and you're retweeting that compliment. That's why he caters to those people. His biggest worshipers are in groups like that. So he just sees it as his fan club, nothing that's actually going to affect him. You know, yeah, Those and- are the people who, if stuff pops off, they're doing it for his benefit. They're not doing it for something that's going to be – you know anti any of his interests now yeah, again and- that's not better that's frightening <laughs> yeah. like at least at least if he was outright racist you could or at least you could point it to that at least to that aspect you could you could at least rationalize it in some way to where oh okay so he's just out of his mind but in this case it's like oh god you could literally have somebody who says like hey if donald trump retweets his back i'll go murder 10 people and he'll retweet it, not understanding that that guy is probably going to make good on that. Like, yeah. That, just, that to me is scary. far more terrifying. Yeah, yeah, it is scary to that aspect. Um, and like I, like I said before uh, in the beginning of the podcast, I'm, I do consider myself moderate. I honestly have no personal problems with Trump. My – my uh, opinion of his intelligence is just my opinion. Doesn't doesn't change how I feel about. It. I'm not I'm not like this dude's stupid. I just think Trump is 
very dangerous with his words. Even if he gets reelected, I wouldn't even have an issue with that if if the election's legit, which I assume is going to be legit. I've never questioned an, an election result before, um, so I would assume whatever the outcome is of this election would be legit. If people want to do another four years of Trump, then we just do another four years of Trump. But I just I just want everybody to be aware of some of the dangerous like language that he uses, man. Like some of the coded language that he uses is crazy. And to me, that's a turn off as a minority voter. Um, but in the same breath, I've got two clips here where it's pretty much like they sound like the same person. So I'm going to play the Trump clip and then I'm going to play the Joe Biden clip. And I want you to tell me what the difference is. All right. Let me see if I can uh, pull them out. Here we go. What do you have to lose by trying something new like Trump? That's Trump in his last campaign. uh, When I think when he was running against Hillary, Um, that was his message to black voters. And then we have our message from Joe Biden to black voters. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. What's the difference? Ah, yes. (laughs) Well, and and again, this is something that, and kind of leading into part of what I had talked about where, you know, the sort of that fight for the soul of the Democratic Party and the reason that the, the COVID outbreak is really the only thing that's giving them I think an edge is the is the fact that the the Democrats' whole platform now really does seem to not have evolved beyond have you seen the other guy? It, it really yeah. hasn't. Like it is, it, it's not an inspiring message to get behind. It really isn't. If you're trying to rejuvenate and you're trying to energize a base of people to go against somebody like Trump, going with a oh, no, I don't really have any kind of, you know, hardcore ideas. And, yes, I am one of those establishment Democrats that are actually a real thing and one of those politicians who really is out of touch and completely unaware of the larger issues at stake in this particular country. But I'm going to get us back to that point where, you know, we weren't quite here. We're just going to go back to where, like, you know, the tensions were just kind of simmering. They weren't actually boiling over. You know, he's, you know, he's basically gambling on, I think, almost a similar strategy to what, you know, Jeb Bush and all of them were doing on the Republican, you know, primary stage where they were just waiting for everybody to get whittled out and then, you know, whoever was left standing won. And I'm hoping that, you know, Biden gets a little bit more aggressive. I did hear that in the particular town hall, he did admit that that 1994 crime bill was a mistake, which is a start, I guess, admitting that, like, certain things that he was involved in were not good long term. But, I mean, it's. It, it's so tough. I mean, again, the, the the stance that Biden seems to take really is, you know, is it, sort of that say. I mean, I think you're right. There is no difference. It's it's just a what have you got? You know, what what do you have to lose? Where it's like a you know it it can only get better from here. Like that's not really inspiring, <laughs> at least as far as the message goes. I listened to 
both men answer questions from um, independent voters or or moderate voters or people who are undecided on who to vote for. And there was no debate distraction. It was just them and a person with a question and a mic. And I can't tell you if anybody answered in a way that would sway a vote. Like it's 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 almost like they both really have no legitimate policy talking points. It's just uh in Trump's case, he just wants to win. So he's just gonna say whatever he can to win. And sometimes he blames things on, on Biden as if Biden was a former president and he wasn't, he was a vice president. And then he when he can't think of anything to blame on Biden he brings up some random thing that's like unfounded or conspiracy theory um, as a talking point. And then he, he scares you into thinking that whatever you see now is going to be way worse than when, when the Democrats get, get control. And in looking at what I get spammed with, and I call it spam because for some reason Dem- Democrats have my number to message me on my phone and they they even post freaking um commercials in between my son's like youtube videos so it's like I, I, we have to watch mm-hmm. them we can't even skip them but like they've also ad- adapted this um what i would consider more localized uh movement to scare people from voting republican um and i just i just think as a moderate voter and just somebody that just wants to see what's best for everybody. Like the idea of making America great should not include making people scared. Like that's like, you don't get respect out of fear. Like that's not like, you don't really get cooperation out of fear. It only goes to a certain point and then people eventually fight back at some point, you know? And I feel like a lot of what we're getting in the, the sense of militia, crazy left, crazy right, is just people getting fed so much ridiculous things or so many ridiculous things and they're fighting back in a way that they know how because they're scared. Like these people really thought that the Michigan governor was a tyrant. They really believed that she shut the state down and, and shut everybody out except for her husband who's allowed to go on a boat and things like that. Now they might, I haven't even looked into that story, uh, but Trump was saying that on his um in his town hall. Hey look, that's the American way, man. If if your husband or wife is has a position of power, typically the person who will benefit is the the spouse, you know, or immediate family members, you know? Like that's just the nature of the well, beast. My my father's a preacher. He gets to park in a particular parking spot. Guess what? If everybody is at the church and there's no parking, I get to park in the preacher spot because that's my dad's spot. Like basically, like it's, it's to me that's essentially how it works. Like your wife's the governor; she shuts everything down. You might be able to get on the boat still. It's not right, no. But how many people? That's just how it works in this country. And and for some reason, that triggers people all of a sudden. Like our president definitely has taken advantage of his position to help family make profit and do other things. I mean, that's that's documented left and right. They're in po- some of them are in positions that they're not even qualified for, and it seems to be perfectly fine, but when it's the other way around, 
we, we, we fall into this trap of our parties are basically spoiled children. Well, they are, but I think you it, it comes down to an even baser or a much more basic thing, which is like if, say you and I are walking down the street and I see you run across the street and punch a random stranger. Now, because I've known you and you're, you've been a good friend of mine for years, my first instinct is going to be to rationalize the act. Okay, he didn't do this because he's just gone crazy. There had to have been something. He either knows the guy, whatever else. I'm going to go initially internally with you and try to figure out the root cause. Whereas if a random stranger saw that exact same scene from that, you know, from a separate perspective, his first instinct is to think, oh, great, here's a completely violent individual who is just going to randomly attack people on a whim. That same mentality seems to get applied to politics and to just people we like in general. We judge one by the intentions and we judge others by the others by the actions. That's that's where the divide seems to come in. That's where this whataboutism crap comes in, which drives me absolutely insane. It's like if your only you know if your only argument to why your candidate did this really terrible thing is. Well, you know, the other guy a long time ago did it too. Uh, okay, but we're not talking about him. We're, we're talking about your guy. How does his, you know, like it's, th- th- there's always that rationale. What, I mean, and that is, I think what always comes to the heart of the issue is that when it comes to, we, we treat politics so much like sports. And it's, it, it, it becomes a team thing where it's like, a, you know, a Patriots fan is never going to, support a Jets fan and vice versa. But you're, it's like, this isn't, this isn't football. This isn't baseball. This isn't hockey. This is something that has real long-term implications. Like, your, your guy winning doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, a whole bunch of stuff is going to happen for you. But we, and it kind of is one of the things that worries me is that that tribalism and that inability to move across the aisle and that inability to try to rationally look and turn your back on people who have done wrong because they happen to adhere to your particular political affiliation is a huge problem in this country. We wonder what stifles compromise. We wonder what prevents people from actually getting things done. It's that inability to concede anything because it's seen as losing points on a scoreboard to another side. Yeah. You know, that's where I think, and and I think that's where the root cause of a lot of this happens. Like, don't get me wrong. I have lost a lot of faith in the Republican party over the course of time because of the two parties, they seem to be the only ones who are placing the party above everything else, above country, above anything else. And that, is very discerning to me because the Democratic Party is far from perfect, but they're at least the ones who are at least maintaining some of that that dignity that they're trying to to get things done. Whereas the Republicans just seem to be, no, we're going to hold on to this at all costs. But there have been stories that I've read and heard where they talk about, you know, like Lindsey Graham is a perfect example. I was reading about him where they were talking about how he faced a really stiff competition his last election because he was seen as 
too soft because there were stories about how he had been, you know, cooperating with his Democratic colleagues. Like, they're also very much a product of their own voting base, which has become driven to the point where they will ditch a candidate if they think they see that candidate conceding too much. Yeah, and so and it's, it's crazy to me that we we find a lot of these people in the past, like Lindsey Graham and Joe Biden, are friends. Like they're really good friends. Um, yeah, and and um, John McCain. And uh, a couple other people were good friends. I mean, Obama and Bush are good friends. You know, uh, like it's it's almost to the point where we we just can't get people to comprehend that there can be compromise. You know, I, I we can't even get a bipartisan reaction in the middle of a pandemic. There's no hope for us. <laughs> It's just no hope. Yeah, no, no. I, I agree with you. I was going to say there have been so many. I mean, my God, it, it even when it came. To, I mean, I felt that way with certain tragedies, like um, like after Sandy Hook happened, when they when nothing came about, when there was when everybody immediately went back to their battle lines, as far as the gun control debate was concerned. I had that same premonition where it's like. We're, we're never like even in this situation with little kids getting shot in a school and the only reaction we have is going back to the same old tried and true well the second amendment yeah but the kids yeah but the second amendment like it's it's frustrating where it's like just don't tell like this this don't tell me this is now a normal part of uh, of american life just cuz you know like it's there, there are so many instances like that where you would think the incident itself was so horrific or the, the situation itself was so mind-blowingly horrible that it's like if there was ever a time for people, to everybody to gather in no man's land and reach across the aisle, this would be it. But time and time again over the – probably since at least, I don't know, probably about 2010 – you know, the last decade? I mean, you, you see it less and less. So I'm going to bring you back on the next podcast. And I, I just had this great idea for what we will do on our next podcast. We're going to tackle our top conspiracy theories from the left and the right about this election. <laughs> Sounds good to me. I, I, mean, think, I think it'll be great just, just, just to kind of show that, look, it's not. It's not just Trump. It's it's a lot going on out here on the internet that uh, people are really giving a lot of thought to, and it's crazy. There, there's a conspiracy theory um, that is essentially moving black voters to vote for Trump, and I don't know, man. Like every time I. I I'm I'm so used to taking things at their word to to a degree where I have to do more research that some of this stuff that I see I'm almost like this just can't, I can't possibly put this in my search engine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll, now we'll, it's, yeah, it, it, I, I I was gonna say I I kind of 
there are certain, I mean, and again, you, you know, that, and especially some of this stuff in like our, you know, our text conversations, like I've been just as guilty as, you know, we, you know, we texting an article or whatever it is based on the title when the substance of the article itself isn't there. So I've been, I'm not like, I've not necessarily gone for the conspiracy theories. However, I do understand the notion of how quickly the news cycle processes things to how difficult it is to filter stuff out. And I think that's one of the things maybe we can open with, at least as far as going into these conspiracy theories, is talking about why we've got at least the underlying theme, if you want to go with that, is the the need of the and why we need the media more than ever to start changing the way they do things and why it's becoming so dangerous. For sure. Hey, look, so in, we're going to close with one of the funniest and strangest things that happened uh, over the last week. Now, I don't know if you've been keeping up with all the debates and things like that, but um, Senator McConnell is taking on a lady by the name of Amy McGrath, and they had an exchange where she basically trashed him uh, for his reaction to the coronavirus pandemic. And I just listen to this man's laugh and just tell me what you think about this. It's it's just so weird. Like I, I she was half talking, so you can't really get a good hearing of, of the laugh all the way through. So I, I got I think like a second clip of just his laugh. And it's just it's just the strangest thing ever. Here we go. You just don't <laughs> what? what? Is, that's him. it. Almost sounded like Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars, right? Right? She, yeah. She's like, she's like giving this like emotional rant on on his failures, and he's just literally sitting over there like you don't know the power. You just don't. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. That's that's like one of those things where it's like in the horror movie when the guy's like got his back against the wall, it's pitch black, and he's wondering with whatever it is that's stalking him in the night is coming, and you just hear the laughter, right? You know, laughter exactly like that right before the knife comes out and kills him. I I, I gotta play it one more time. You just don't. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that. I'm going to keep that soundbite for the rest of our show. I don't know how many episodes we're gonna get. But I guarantee you, I will find a way <laughs> to add that into every show. You just don't. <laughs> That's the Start doing that when you actually make a when you when you actually make a good point, or at least when you're trying to, you know, if, if you think you're starting to lose the debate, just play that clip over it. Just throws everybody <laughs> right. off the game. Right. Hey, I, and I promise you, next week we will definitely cover um, Lindsey Graham because he had two of the worst quotes of all time and he says he was joking i want to believe that he's joking and it was it, the comment to um the comment during the judiciary hearing uh, or the appointment hearing uh dick seemed kind of tongue-in-cheek but it just it's just not to me it's not something the republican party or any republican candidate needs to be saying right now um, so we'll definitely get to that, and I'm sure my man Mitch had a good laugh. You just don't. So thank you guys <laughs> for tuning in to the Mod Pod. Um, I'm gonna go back and edit some of it just 
because the runtime is going to be kind of long. But either way, we will be back next week with uh, our favorite conspiracy theories. And I don't know, we might even rank them as to how much truth we believe that they have. And uh, I'll, like I said, I'll find a way to get Mitch's laugh in there. Thanks for calling in, Paul. Um, I'll see you next week. All right. All right, man. Absolutely. So this has been the Mod Pod. Uh, this is IBSEs is your host. Again, you can check all of our content out um, at IBN Sports um, on Twitter. Actually, the, the handle is at IBN. Um, you can find us on Facebook. Obviously, we've got IBN Sports. We've got the music group. We've got the turnbuckle group. We've got the sports and entertainment, or sorry, music and entertainment group. Uh, television group and then we also have various podcasts like I said I'm just one host IBS Jesus uh, my co-host on my sports podcast Keith Fleming does a team turnbuckle uh, wrestling podcast he's also got various podcasts where he does reviews of TV shows um, our fearless leader Ronnie Carlton does uh, his own podcast as well uh, where he also reviews Netflix shows TV shows uh, he also has probably the best interviews out of all of us um i think i i got one good interview where i got uh a famous boxing analyst but he, he's interviewed people from the author of the concussion book all the way to um to some of the more famous analysts and sports writers in the business so again support our content um by all means if you if you like it give it a five-star review if you don't like it, still give it a five-star review and then just inbox me what you don't like, <laughs> all right? So this is, this is IBS Jesus, and this is the first episode of the Mod Pod, and we're signing off.